Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills Podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, I am uh, I'm kind of a sucker uh, when it comes to Facebook because I love any post that has a top 10 in it. You know, how the algorithm works is once they know you like something, they keep sending it to you. So any sort of post is like, like a BuzzFeed article says, like, you know, the top 10 this or the 10 things you didn't know, I will click that every time. And if it's, if it's sporting facts, if it's about music, you know, the top 10 songs of 1998 or whatever it might be, I will click that link. But there were two that came across this week that I thought were really, really interesting. And one was nine historical predictions that came true and then 13 predictions that turned out to be dead wrong. And so this was a lot of fun to look at and read. And so just a few of the ones from the ones that were true. Uh, in 1909, Nikola Tesla, so you know the, the car of the Tesla, he was an incredible uh, engineer and scientist, um, actually predicted Wi-Fi and mobile phones over 100 years ago. Uh, he believed that we could transmit information across airwaves. Um, another person believed that in 1955, we would have earbuds. Uh, in 1968, someone believed that we would have iPads. They described it as a, as a, uh, a digital, a TV, uh, a handheld TV news device. And so they couldn't really describe what it was. And then in 1660, a man named Robert Boyle um, believed that there would be organ transplants, aspirin, and sleeping pills all at some point uh, when it came to uh, the inventions that we would make. The ones that were wrong were a lot more fun. Um, there was someone who believed that TVs, phones, particularly, particularly cell phones, and even electricity were just going to be fads. These were things that were eventually going to fade away. Uh, John Philip Sousa, who was a composer in 1906, believed that recorded music would destroy the ability to understand music, and I think he might be a little bit right on that. Um, but he, and so this idea of these are things that were wrong, but my favorite, and I think the one that makes the most sense and actually speaks to Easter this morning is a man named E.F. Smith in 1930 was a former British cabinet member under, um, um, under, um, uh, Churchill. And he said by 2030, we would practically live forever. He said by 2030, within 100 years of his prediction, there would be enough medicine and enough medical advancement and enough cures that we could almost live forever, that we could sustain the human body, he believed, well over 200 years. And that seems pretty outlandish almost 100 years later because the old saying goes, and I still think it holds, that the only two guarantees in life are death and taxes. Overcoming death seems impossible. Coming up with enough human ingenuity and cures and medical advancements seems impossible to overcome death because death seems like something that we just can't avoid, yet that is the big claim of Christianity. The big claim of Christianity is that God overcame death, that God did the impossible. And the reason that we are here today is because Jesus rose from the grave. We have no other hope. And this morning, maybe you're, you're checking out church for the first time, maybe you're new, maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus yet, and you're just kind of wrestling with some of these claims about Christianity. Um, maybe all this church stuff seems odd, and you have all of these questions. You have so many questions about, the, about morality and, and intellectual questions and emotional problems with, with Christianity. You have all of these objections and these struggles, but it really comes down to the central claim of Christianity. It's the one claim did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, none of that matters. 
But if Jesus did raise from the dead, then it matters immensely. So much so that the Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, 13 of the 26 books in the New Testament, uh, said that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we're wasting our time. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we, you and I are wasting our time this morning. We might as well be at brunch at Brassica. We might as well be getting a cup of coffee or playing ultimate frisbee or soccer. We might as well be doing anything else other than gathering here on a Sunday morning. Christianity pushes all of its chips onto the table on this one claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I believe this is important for at least two reasons. Number one, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection four times in the gospel accounts. Four times Jesus said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise again. At one point he said, you will tear this temple down and three days later it will be built back up. Jesus predicted that the demonstration of his power would come through his resurrection. And the second reason is that nothing demonstrates God's ability to do the impossible, like doing the one thing that you and I can't do, which is raise the dead to life. And if Jesus did that, if Jesus truly rose from the dead and the Bible is correct, then all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our struggles fall in line under that. And we can trust him with everything because he has dealt with our greatest problem. And so we need to take a look this morning at how God makes what is impossible, possible. That is what the resurrection is about, to deal with the one problem that you and I can't, and this is how God restores us to himself forever. So let's look firstly at what the resurrection means from John chapter 20. And the resurrection means that new life is possible. New life is possible. And to make this claim at this moment in the gospel story seems like a pretty outlandish claim because Jesus has just been laid to rest a couple of days before. Verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday, a few days after Jesus had been crucified and buried, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She's coming to the tomb with all hope lost. She's coming to the tomb because the person that she has loved and cherished and followed is now dead, and she is coming to remember him. And so Mary Magdalene comes early in the morning while it is still dark. She goes early in the morning for a few reasons, probably to avoid scorn, probably to avoid the mockery of other people who had saw her follow Jesus and say, why, why would you still come here? Why would you still believe your Savior, your Messiah, your King is dead? But it was also quiet. She could be alone. She, she's mourning. And if you look at the other gospel accounts, we do see that she's not totally by herself. Some other women come with Jesus and they go to the tomb in order to prepare Jesus' body for final burial. They are preparing him with spices to go inside the linen cloths in order to keep the body fresh because they didn't have the same embalming uh, technology that we have today. And so they go there, and this is a very expensive undertaking. The spices were very expensive, but also very final. She is going to say goodbye to Jesus for the last time. And as she comes up, it says at the end of verse 1, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, this would have been really alarming, because this stone wasn't just like any other stone. It was like a giant disc, probably a little bit bigger than this piano over here to my right, to your left, that would have been rolled down a channel in front of an opening inside of a cave. A very large tomb, that would, a large stone that would have been very difficult to move. Uh, just this week, I got a call from someone here at the church. We got a brand new cart. We were, we're getting fancy. We got a brand new cart for all of our church signs to go in. So all of our parking signs that you followed on the way in with this big, giant 
uh, cart. And so we order this, it finally gets here, and she's like, hey, it's, it's in the middle of the entryway, you know, what do you want to do with it? And I'm like, well, I'll just come up there and move it. And she said, I, I don't think you understand. Um, I don't think you can move this. And I'm, I get kind of prideful. I'm like, you know, I've, I've been working out. I, I, I squat and deadlift. I got this. I got no big deal. I could not move this thing. I, I got there and I, I, I tried to lift it. And I, the best I could do was kind of shove it out of the way and put a partition in front of it. There was no way that I could move this on my own. Very similarly, the disc, the stone that would have rolled in front of the tomb would have been very difficult to move. It would have taken multiple people and, like, and there would have been Roman soldiers standing in front of the tomb, keeping anyone from coming and taking this. So as Mary is looking at this, she's thinking either the Roman government or the Jewish officials have come and taken the body of Jesus. And her reaction was that this was not what was expected. She was not expecting a risen Christ. She was not expecting Jesus to be risen from the dead. And in verse 2, she runs. It says she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And her explanation to them was, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She did not in that moment understand that Jesus was alive. She thought that they had just taken Jesus' body away. It had never crossed her mind that God could do the impossible And we see Peter and the other disciple, which seems like a really odd way to describe yourself because we do believe the other apostle is John who is writing the book of John. And in verse four, I think this is probably one of my favorite verses of the entire Bible because it has straight up best friend energy. Like there's so much best friend energy in this. It says in verse four, both of them, Peter and the other disciple were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That sounds so much like something I would tell my best friends. So here's John writing down details so that for 2,000 years, people can know that he's faster than his best friend. Uh, I have friends that I still get together with, and we're like, do you remember that time I like, destroyed you in one-on-one basketball? They're like, shut up. Like, and this back and forth. We, this is some straight-up best friend energy. And so John gets to the tomb. He looks down into the tomb, verse 5. He stoops to look in, and he sees the linen cloth lying there. And this has to be really surreal for John. John is, you can imagine, stopping with his hand on the edge of the tomb and just looking in. He can't bring himself to go in. This is really surreal. He's imagining Jesus is dead, and now someone has taken Jesus' body. He's processing everything that he's seeing and the body that he's not seeing. He's processing the fact that he just watched Jesus die on a Roman cross a few days before an absolutely excruciating death, and he can't just bring himself to go in. And I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where you finally get to the funeral and you see the casket and you realize it's real. The person isn't just gone on a vacation. The person isn't just not answering the phone. This person is gone. And here's John processing this moment and he's probably starting to get a little angry thinking they really stooped so low that they would steal Jesus' body. So Peter and his little short legs finally catch up in verse 6. Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb, and this is such a Peter thing to do. He runs right past John, right into the midst of danger, into the middle of the tomb, and he looks at the scene, and he is so quick to act. He's the first to speak. This makes Peter a good leader later on. It also shows that Peter will put his foot in his mouth over and over again. And like John, he sees the the linen clothes laying there, and the wheels begin to start turning because he notices something's off. Something is off about this scene because, first of all, the linen cloth is still there. 
And it's not just there, it's lying as if the body was still there, as if the body had just kind of removed itself from the linen clothing. Verse 7, they see that the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself, is almost as if someone sat up, took the cloth off their face, folded it, and stuck it in another spot. Like Sherlock Holmes, if you've ever read the books or seen any of the shows or movies, he's processing the scene and he's beginning to put all the clues together and they are starting to do this. And the word for saw there means that they notice and they're turning this over in their heads and they're thinking, wait a minute, this is not the way that a grave robber would act. They would have taken the very expensive linens. They would have taken the very expensive spices. They would have taken these things with them and they're left looking at an empty tomb. They're looking at empty grave clothes. And they're asking themselves, why is there no body? And in verse 8, it hits John. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. And John is thinking, he did it. Jesus actually did it. Jesus actually rose from the dead. All this stuff he was talking about wasn't a metaphor. Jesus was being literal. He literally was going to raise from the dead. And now John sees it and believes it, that Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated death and sin once and for all. And here's why they came to believe it, because it was factual and it was personal. They were looking at the fact of a risen Jesus. They're seeing this personally, and they believe that it is true. It's like whenever I go to a movie now, I I check Google to see if there's going to be an end credit scene, because Marvel has ruined movies for me, because all the Marvel movies, you knew there was going to be an end credit scene. So now every movie, I'm like, is there going to be an end credit scene? I've seen it, and now I believe it. I see it, and now I'm looking for it. And what gives us hope, and what gives us meaning, and what gives us new life as followers of Jesus is not an idea It's not that we come together on Sunday morning and we look at the life of Jesus and the example and the good things he did and how he treated the poor and we get the warm fuzzies, but that we have personally experienced that Jesus has overcome the grave. And what this means is that you can trust Jesus for new life as well. This is good news for you today, that Jesus is risen from the grave. The resurrection is good news. And we see, secondly, that the resurrection is good news for all types of people. The rest of John's book, his gospel, his, his, his letter, um, is, is really discussing people who experienced Jesus and how Jesus met different kinds of people. And you see in verse 11, he meets Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is someone who's brokenhearted. We see that God, and, and through the resurrection, brings good news for the brokenhearted. Mary is, is weeping in verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. She, she is an absolute wreck because Jesus has radically changed her life. If you look at the other gospel accounts, we see that Mary Magdalene was a woman who was plagued by demons. Joseph Klausner categorized Mary Magdalene as a woman who had suffered from hysterics to the verge of madness. And if you've ever seen the series The Chosen, which is a great dramatization of the gospel stories, the story of Mary Magdalene is beautiful woman who is absolutely wrecked, and Jesus comes and changes her life, rescuing her and freeing her. Jesus had done everything for her. Her life before Jesus was an utter wreck, but he dignifies her and loves her and heals her. And here she is weeping. And this is not like restrained crying. 
This is ugly crying. This is wailing. This is, um, she's in a, just a beside herself. And so she's thinking, not only is Jesus dead, but now his body is gone. And she goes to the grave like you or I might for a loved one and stands near the grave, wanting to be near him one last time. And through the tears with swollen eyes, she brings herself to look in. And in verse 12, she sees two angels. And what's fascinating to me is these angels are sitting at the foot and the head of where Jesus laid is she doesn't react like most people in the Bible do to angels. Most people in the Bible are scared to death. It's like when a toddler wakes you up at 2 a.m. for some water, like whispering at you. That's, that's, what I, that's the fear that would come with an angel. But she is so emotionally wrecked that she can't even process that. She's so grief-stricken. Verse 13, she just wants to know where the body is. Verse 14, Jesus appears to her and she doesn't even realize it's Jesus. She thinks that Jesus is a gardener and thinks, okay, well, maybe you've just been given orders to take the body away and I know you're just doing your job. And verse 15, we see that she's probably a woman of some means. And so she's like, I'll take care of the cost. I don't care what it costs. I'll bury Jesus. I love him so much. And then verse 16, Jesus changes Mary with one word. He heals the brokenhearted with one word. He just simply says her name, Mary. He called her by name. Jesus calls the brokenhearted by our names. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, I know you. I know all your heartache. I know all your pain. I know all your suffering. I know all your past, and you belong to me. John 10, 3 says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. She responds, Rabbani, which roughly translates a teacher like God. And Jesus' resurrection means that he came to mend broken hearts. He came to give hope and to wipe away every tear and to make right every sorrow. And if he overcame death, that means that he can overcome anything. And what you need to realize, though, is that that only comes through putting your faith and trust in Jesus. The only way to have a broken heart healed is to give your heart to Jesus and trust that he is gentle and good to mend it. Jackie Hill Perry says that his resurrection is all of the proof that I need that he will make all things new. And not just this world and the heavens and the church, but me, my mind, my heart, and my body will resurrect into something glorious. So the resurrection is good news for the brokenhearted. It's also good news for those who are afraid. You look at verse 19, we see that God gives good news to those who are afraid. The disciples are hanging out in the the room, and they're hiding behind locked doors because they're terrified. Their leader has just been killed. They're wondering what could possibly be next. They have every reason in the world to be afraid. What do we do now? And then we see in verse 20, as Jesus appears through a locked door, and he says, peace be with you. They They don't run screaming. They don't freak out. Why? Because Jesus shows them his hands and his side. He comforts them. He shows them that because he had defeated death and the grave and rose again, that they don't have to be afraid. And what that means is is that in your darkest moments, when you're so afraid and you have no clue where to turn, Jesus gives you the strength to turn to him, the strength to make it through. Where do you tend to turn when you're afraid? The disciples are probably doing what you and I do when they're afraid. They hide away. 
Some are probably ignoring the situation. They're downplaying it. They're, they're, they're in denial that Jesus is actually dead. Some are, are probably just thinking, well, I'm just going to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back to my job tomorrow catching fish, or I'm going to go back to being a carpenter or a craftsman. Some are probably ready to fight. They're like, man, I am ready to go throw blows for Jesus. Jesus offers peace that surpasses understanding. Sandra McCracken, who's a, a, a Christian artist in, uh, in Nashville, reflecting on the shooting in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, said, we don't know what awaits us at our jobs and schools, but we live into the paradox of light and dark. Although Jesus made it look easy, I find it more difficult than ever, and what he has accomplished is ours in faith. He gives us peace that can be ours through faith in him. The resurrection also means hope for those who doubt. Verse 24, you probably heard the term doubting Thomas. Thomas is one of Jesus' disciples who was not there at the, uh, at the first meeting where Jesus came to his disciples. And they're trying to tell him. They're trying to evangelize him. They're trying to say, hey, we're, we're, we want you to, to understand what we just witnessed. They're telling him this in verse 25. And at the end of verse 25, we see Thomas is kind of a show me kind of guy. He's like, I just, I'm just not buying it. I didn't see this personally. I'm not buying it. And I, I need proof. And he says in very rough terms, unless I can touch his wounds, unless I can put my finger in his wounds, unless I can put my hand in his side, I'm just not going to believe this. My mind is made up. And so verse 26, we see that they're still afraid. Eight days later, they're in the room. the, The doors are locked. And Jesus enters in, apparently walking through the wall. Now, that may sound miraculous to you, but if Jesus can raise from the dead, this is child's play, right? Uh, he He can come through a wall. And so Jesus appears to them again. He says, peace be with you. And what's amazing about this, and I think this is how Jesus deals with our doubts, is he aims right at Thomas's doubt. He doesn't go around it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He aims right at it. And what he looks at Thomas and says is, he says, go ahead, take your finger and put it in my wound if you need to. Reach out your hand, take your hand and put it in my side if that's what it's going to take. Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Because no matter what you believe, you have to account for the empty tomb. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were put on public display. And what that means is that it can be verified as true or shown as false. Our faith is based on facts. It's based on the fact that we believe he lived, that he died, that he rose again. And this happened or it didn't. It can be verified, or it's not verified. And as Kathy Keller says, we trust, but we verify. And there are all sorts of theories that have been, people have tried to, to lay out there for how there might be an empty tomb. Some have said that, the, they, again, they stole the body. We've talked about how hard that would be, that there was a twin. Jesus had a look-alike. That he was just injured really badly. And some have said, this is just a myth. But none of that can explain this like the over 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. None of this can explain the radical change it caused in the people like the disciples who moved from doubt and fear to courage and then taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, giving their life so that others would know him. He saved them and he changed them by what he did. And so the empty tomb is an invitation to behold Jesus And as Kathy Keller continues, she says, To my surprise, I realized the stone needed to be rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to verify so we can trust. 
The empty tomb is the evidence we need to trust in God. The resurrection invites us to trust in a person, in Jesus, the Son of God, who rose from the dead so that you could have confidence in Him. And so maybe this is you this morning. You're carrying all those doubts, all the intellectual problems and emotional struggles. Bring them to Jesus, because here's what happens. If Jesus rose from the dead, you can trust Him with those. Verse 28, all of a sudden, Thomas's doubts and his problems don't seem as big because he says, my Lord and my God. Unanswered questions don't matter as much when you realize that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem often is that we look at Christianity in pieces. We're looking at the puzzle pieces over here that don't seem to fit instead of looking at the broader picture of the fact that Jesus' resurrection means all of these things have an answer. That we'll find the answer in due time. And listen, I don't have every doubt that I have as a Christian airtight figured out. But I know that God is good and I know that Jesus is alive and I can trust him with those. But lastly, the resurrection is good news for those who need forgiveness. If you look at chapter 21, Peter is still figuring some things out. Peter, who was so bold and so confident, is, is completely, his world is shattered. He's trying to figure some things out, and, and he, we see at the beginning of chapter 21 that he does what he knows best. He goes fishing. He, he has a problem. He goes and tries to fish. His friends don't want him to be alone, so they, they come with him, and they go out into the water, and we see a scene that is actually kind of a replay of something that happened early in Jesus' ministry. We see a replay of where Jesus first met his disciples, and they couldn't catch anything, and he said, throw your net on the other side, and they caught more fish than they could possibly imagine. This happens again. They catch 153 fish, and Peter realizes this. Jesus goes into Peter mode again and jumps into the water fully clothed and swims to shore about the same time that the boat gets there. That's just very Peter. And so Jesus makes them breakfast on the shore and then pulls Peter aside. And Jesus asks Peter a question three times. The same question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Verse 15, he asked it this way, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than, the, than these? Do you love me more than these other 10 men who've been following me for the last three years? Your, your, your brothers in arms, your band of brothers, the guys you love, do you love me more than them? And John says, of course I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. And Jesus goes on again to ask him two more times, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. Third time in verse 17, he says, do you love me? And Peter is starting to get upset. He's starting to get, to get grieved, as it says. He's starting to become upset at the idea that, that Jesus doesn't think he loves him. But if Peter's honest, he realizes he didn't love Jesus like he was supposed to. He failed to love Jesus the way Jesus deserved to be loved. The same Peter who was great at making these big promises earlier in the Gospels, he said, when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, Peter said, I'll come die with you. The same Peter who would act without thinking, who chopped the ear off of a young Roman soldier just a week earlier, denied Jesus three times before others. What Jesus is doing here is forgiving Peter, but the only way to truly be forgiven is to first come to terms with what needed to be forgiven. Peter failed. He failed to love Jesus first. And if you and I are honest, we also know that we have failed to love God as we should. 
We fail to live the life that we know we're called to live. And if you're a religious person and you grew up in church, you know, you understand guilt probably. You understand, you know, there's certain morals and certain ways that that God would want you to live. But even if you're not religious, there's something inside of you that lets you know that you're just not quite enough. You're not living up to something that you can't even put your finger on. And what seeing your sin does is drives you to the one place that can actually be forgiven, which is through Jesus who's risen from the dead. Because it helps you see that you need to come to the end of yourself and realize, I'm never going to love Jesus enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be moral enough. I'm never going to care enough about the right things. I'm never going to give enough money. I'm never going to be able to do all the things that I think I need to do to be right with God or others. And you realize that only Jesus can make you right. And this is where Peter comes finally in the third when he says, you know everything. I'm tired of trusting in myself, Jesus. You know everything, and I love you, and I trust you for that. The resurrection means that people like Peter, people like you and I, can have another chance. It doesn't matter what you've done, but it matters who you trusted to forgive you for what you've done. Jesus died and rose again so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And so the resurrection means good news because the brokenhearted are given healing and sent with that good news. The fearful are given courage, the doubter is given confidence, and the sinner is given forgiveness. So where do you find yourself this morning? Do you find yourself brokenhearted? Do you find yourself afraid? Do you find yourself doubting? Or maybe for the first time this morning, you realize that you need forgiveness that only a Savior can give. Give your life to Jesus today. Receive the salvation that Jesus offers by faith. As you process that, three questions to consider about whether it might be time for you to follow Jesus would be, do do you love Jesus who first loved you and gave his life for you? Will you trust Jesus who overcame the grave? Will you follow Jesus who leads to life? Let's pray. 